Welcome to the Next Level Finance Podcast. This is your host, Tony Kane. It's pretty crazy times we're living in at the moment. The markets are all in free fall, but it's not all bad news. Today, I've got pleasure of hosting Jeremy Schneider. He runs a business, Personal Finance Club. If you haven't already, you've got to head over to his website and check out his Instagram page. Jeremy's been super instrumental in teaching people the basic fundamentals of how to create wealth. And he's got himself in a position where at age 39, he's got a net wealth of over $3 million and he lives an amazing lifestyle. So Jeremy, thanks for coming on board. I'm really glad to have you on today. Thanks for having me, Tony. It is my pleasure. Now, mate, I know that the world is sort of crumbling down around us down here in Australia. How's things are in your territory over there in the US? Yeah, the same. It's uh, definitely the weirdest time of my life. It just seems like everything's closed. Um, people are pretty worried. Grocery stores are kind of have bare shelves. Um, lots of people have, you know, work that is getting shut down, whether it's restaurants or bars or, you know, anything that's kind of in personal services. Um, and from what I can tell, you know, we haven't even been close to see the worst of it yet. So, um, it's a, it's a scary time for sure. Well, that's why I was really excited to have you on today. Cause I would, I'd love for you, if you could, to take me back to how you got started in investment. And if, if for anyone listening out there, I'll have it in the show notes, but if you went over to uh, Jeremy's Instagram page at personal finance club, you'll be able to see the work he does. And it's just, the tips and the tricks that he does and the formulas that he uses are quite amazing. So Jeremy, could you just take us back? I'd love to hear how you got started in investing and what sort of got you to where you are today. Sure. Well, my very first taste of investing was when I was, uh, I think about 14 years old. It was the first time I ever had a job. And I know in Australia, you guys have the thing called the super. Uh, we, don't yeah. have, <laughs> we don't have supers in the US, but we do have something called a Roth IRA, which is kind of like our or one of our government-sponsored uh, retirement investment accounts. And so when I got my first job, um, I made like 1200 bucks for the summer or something. And my dad, who was very wise to get me started on the right path, decided to, um, you know, and the, and the rule is you can't basically, just like with a super, you know, it's, it's work-based, so you can't contribute to that unless you have a job. And okay. you can never contribute more than you actually make. That's one of the rules. And so my dad, when I made 1200 bucks, he knew like the letter of the law says you can only contribute 1200 bucks. And so he actually took 1200 of his own dollars, put it into a investment account for me, and then let me spend my 1200 or spend or save my $1,200. Um, and so then, and he kind of explained what was happening. He said, okay, this is going to go into an investment account. It's for a very long-term investing. We're going to buy mutual funds with it. It's going to grow over a long period of time. And so, you know, even at the relatively young age of 14, I kind of, that was kind of just like part of my worldview that this is what people do, they invest. Um, and so now like as an adult, when I talk to other adults who have no idea how to invest or have no idea how buying a mutual fund works or how opening an investment account works, it kind of blows my mind because that's, that's been part of my world for so long. So I'm very fortunate to have a, have a dad and have a family who like talked to me about money, talked to me about money and, you know, set me up on the right path. I love that. And I suppose most 14 year olds would be, you know, not, not, not very happy that they're getting their $1,200 ripped away from them investing into a, an account. I'm sure that you would have had a, a lot better ideas to that money when you were younger. But it's funny you say that about your parents giving you that education because I, I'm not sure what it's like in the US, but in Australia, we don't, there's 0% financial education in our school curriculum. So if you don't learn it from a parent, you've got to sort of almost look at, look at other ways. Or that's why I think there's probably so many people in so much financial difficulty, not because they've you know, done the wrong thing, but they've just never been taught how to do 
sort of the right thing. And is that sort of moving forward? Is that what made you sort of move into your business where it's basically largely around, largely based around sort of financial education, Jeremy? Yeah, I 100% agree. And it's the exact same here in the States where it's not taught, you know, we teach math and science and English and history all with the purpose of making a living as an adult and throughout your career. But then we don't teach the thing by which you measure the success of that career, or the, you know, the earnings of that career, which is money. Uh, we don't teach anything about it. We don't teach about budgeting or balancing a checkbook or debt or um, mortgages or investments or anything like that. And so then, yeah, you kind of have this, you know, every year there's a crop of 18 year old new, new young adults who enter the world and just fall into the same traps. They get buried in credit card debt. They spend all their money. They get into car leases. They, you know, they just do all the wrong things that just are easy because they're normal because it's what everyone else is doing, but it's not what's best for them as a person. And so, yeah, that's kind of what drives my passion is kind of spreading the word and, and saying, hey, no, don't do those things. Spend less than you make, invest the difference, and then you will be wealthy over time. Um, and if you don't do those two things, then you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost sounds, you know, comical how, how simple it is, right? And, and every, you know, every, all the wealthy people that I've worked with for so long who have become extremely wealthy, they just do the same things. But it's, uh, it's funny how so many people, they know what to do, but they just don't do it. And so I mean, take me back a little bit further. So like, let's say at 14, you've, your dad sort of forced you into investing. So how did sort of that sort of multiply and turn out for you as you got a little bit older? So I should clarify, uh, he, when, when he put 1200 bucks into that account, he kind of matched my earnings and he put 1200 of his own dollars and he let me keep mine. So he didn't actually like steal my earnings. And so it was kind of like, he, he was just doing a trick to the letter of the law where <laughs> since I was only allowed to invest 1200, he kind of put his own money in there. Um, so yeah, he didn't actually steal my, you know, little 14 year old summer camp earnings. Um, but yeah, so then it continued. And so I ended up starting a company when I was 22, as I was graduating from university. And then I grew that company for 12 years. And over the course of me running that company, um, I never paid myself more than $36,000 a year. So I basically was living on $3,000 a month. Um, but even less than that, because I was living on about 2,500 a month and I was investing $500 a month. And so even at that low level of income, I was still living below my means and investing. And so then at the age of 34, my net worth was about $120,000 or so, which isn't, you know, crazy a lot of money, but I certainly was on, you know, it's good for living on only $36,000 a year, especially in San Diego, which is kind of a high cost of living area in the States. Um, and then, uh, and I was certainly on the path to become a millionaire, you know, just that $120,000 compounding over the rest of my career, plus the addition I would put into it, I would have easily been a millionaire probably in my early 50s or so. Um, but then when I was 34, I actually sold the company that I had started for 5 million bucks. And after I split it with my co-owner, who was my mom, um, and paid a million dollars in taxes, I ended up with about 2 million bucks. Um, and then I continued living below my means and investing. And so I was at age of 34 and now at age 39. As of a month ago, I had about $3.8 million. And now as of today, my net worth is more like... Don't go there. Don't go there. I don't, okay. want, I don't okay. want to take it. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. It'll come back. I want, to, I want to talk to that a little bit later, but that's okay. Mate. We don't have to bring it up. I know it's a sore point for all of us, <laughs> but I love that story. That's a, that's an amazing story. Like for someone of your age to accomplish what you have 
it's it's that is brilliant. And I mean, like, can I ask what the what the business was and how fundamental that was to the to the wealth creation for you, Jeremy? Sure. Yeah, uh, I studied computer science in college, and so I started an internet company. Um, and it's a little bit different in Australia, I think, but here in the States, if you want to search for an apartment, you have, there's like a bunch of different websites you can go to search on. Um, you can go to like Craigslist. I think you guys have like Gumtree, um, you know, there's Zillow and I think you guys have some other sites. And so there's a bunch of these different sites. Um, and so, but if you're a landlord, if you're someone who owns a rental property, you have a challenge of how do you post all those different sites. And so I made a website where you could post once to my website and automatically be on like 50 different apartment search websites. And so landlords were our customers. They use our tool to kind of syndicate their postings across all the internet websites. And yeah, we just, we just focused on that very specific little niche for about 12 years. It turned out it was kind of a difficult problem to solve. Um, and then someone realized how hard it was to solve that problem and saw how good of a job we were doing at it. And they bought us for a lot of money. So it was cool. Mate, that is excellent. And, and now moving forward, are you only like, do you basically just invest for a living now, Jeremy? Yeah, so I worked for the company that bought my company for two years, and then I basically quit slash retired. I, you know, I hate the word retired because it's not like <laughs> I'm doing nothing. I am kind of starting this next venture of mine. Um, but yeah, I don't have a nine to five anymore. Um, I own um, a rental property with a buddy that we, you know, we do vacation rentals, um, and I have a bunch of money in investments and then a few other random investments. But yeah, basically my my income now is investments and my time is spent working on personal finance club. Excellent. Now talk me through, I read, I read one of your blogs recently, the basically talking about your net worth is 3.8 million, but you rent a one bedroom apartment. So in Australia, home ownership is this big, it's this big goal. And you know, I run a, I run a mortgage business, so I get paid to lend people money, but sometimes, you know, there's a lot of, I sometimes turn more people away from borrowing than, than actually letting people borrow because it's, they're just trying to borrow too much. So talk me through that home ownership and your philosophy on that compared to say growing your wealth in, in funds and so forth. Yeah. So full disclosure, I did recently buy a two bedroom condo just in November and I moved in about a month ago. And so I lived in, you know, for years, I think for four years after I became a millionaire, I still lived in my one bedroom apartment. Um, and when I bought my place, it was not because it was a great financial move. In fact, in my opinion and my experience so far, it was a pretty terrible financial move. Uh, but yeah, we okay. have the same thing in the U.S. where people are just so fixated on home ownership that it's, the, it's like a measure of success. If you don't own a home, then you're not doing well. Um, and I think mathematically, that's generally not true. Um, you know, and, and I, I, because the home you live in costs a lot of money. You, know, you have to buy it with a lot of money. You have to pay property you have to pay interest you know property tax you have to pay mortgage interest you have to pay for repairs you have to pay property insurance you have to pay realtor fees all that stuff is just totally sunk costs and you know and it's not an investment because no one's paying you money you know you're paying all this money to live there and so when you extend that over the, even the course of a 30-year 30-year mortgage when you include the appreciation of the home assuming you sell it for more you still actually lose a little bit of money on the deal so it's kind of like a forced savings account where you lose a little bit of money. And if you're in the mortgage business, you might not love me saying this. Um, no, but I no, think, I, okay. I, I do agree. I do agree. I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's different when you have kids and things like that. You sort of, you know, a lot of people and in, in myself included, like I love the security of knowing, okay, well, you know, my girls have a place to grow up and, you know, next to friends and schools and things like that. But, you know, starting all over again, like I think the challenge here is that we can't get, you know, leases 
for more than 12 months. So you don't have a lot of security, but yeah. if, if I could get at least for five or 10 years in a, in a place that I knew that I could be at for in, for a substantial period of time, I'd be, I'd be quite happy to, to lease something and either invest in other property that pay me income or, or equities and so forth. But unfortunately, we just don't have that luxury here. But the, I think mathematically, you're right. I mean, there's a, I suppose there's that qualitative versus quantitative piece, isn't it? Where it's like numbers versus security and things like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And uh, you make a great point, which is I don't think buying a home is bad. I think it's great that you have a place for your kids. And I think if you like home ownership and you want the, yeah, the security, you want the consistency, or you like doing the maintenance, or you like doing remodels, there's nothing bad about it. It costs you money no matter where you live, whether you rent or whether you own, it's going to cost you money. Um, but I think that, like kind of the trap that a lot of people fall into is believing that home ownership is a great investment. And so then they kind of give themselves a free pass to buy as much house as they possibly can. And so you kind of end up what's called house poor, where every, like every dollar of your paycheck is going just in plowing it into your primary home. And then you don't have the opportunity to invest in either other investment real estate or in mutual funds outside of your primary home. And so I think if you kind of look, look at the math and believe that it's not a great investment and then buy more simply, buy more... Um, modestly buy more frugally and then invest outside of your primary residence, you'll just be so much better off. Uh, mate, I love that you said that because I have a bit of a philosophy with my, with my business and my clients where I like for my clients, not so much to worry about how much they're borrowing, but I just don't like the repayments to exceed 30% of their take home pay because I, I sort of have, um, I've done a lot of this tracking over the last 12 years and I've run the numbers and I think most people can live off 60% of their take home pay, which, which that's for, you know, groceries and fuel and just, you know, getting around and putting clothes on your back. So that enables 40% left over. So my sort of philosophy has been, well, if you really want a home, try to try to keep it to maximum of 30%, your repayments to maximum of 30% of your take home pay. And that leaves another 10% for wealth creation, which is actually going to change your life. And that's going to give you the ability to slow down work or in, in your case, and, you know, retire. When I say retire, you know, have the choice to do what you want to do. So I think yeah. there's that sort of that flex where if, I don't, I've seen cases where people become, you know, mortgage prisoners, where if their repayments are 50 to 60% of their take home pay, well, yeah. they might have a lovely home, but I can guarantee you there's not much left over for, for holidays or much fun. So I think yeah. I, I completely agree. There's a fine line. And um, like what I'd love to do, let's say, let's say we had like, you know, to get a little bit tactical, right? Cause um, you know, not, you know, not everyone has the sort of luxury ability expertise to start a business. What would you sort of say to one of my listeners out there who might just be getting started in, um, with investing and he's probably not, inclined to go down that running his own business path so he's not going to sort of come into a you know a shitload of money really quickly how, how would yeah. you give someone like that advice in terms of growing their wealth over time yeah i i feel like there's listeners out there who are waiting for the secret waiting for the big thing <laughs> how do you hit it big and like the, the the devastating secret is there is no secret and when we when we say things like live below your means and invest early and often that's because it's the thing that actually has been proven to work over decades and decades and decades. And so, so yeah, I'd say two things is one, don't lose focus of the big things that matter most, which, which is exactly what you just said, which is if you spend every dollar you make, you're just going to be a prisoner in your own home. So you have to live below your means, spend less than you make. So if you're bringing home 4,000 bucks a month, you know, spend 3,000 or 3,500 and make sure that you always take a little bit off the top first to invest. 
And then the second, you know, I have these two rules. First is live below your means. And the second rule is invest early and often. And so, yeah, if you're just starting out, um, I, I'm a big fan of investing in what's called an index fund. An index fund is an easy way to basically buy a big list of stocks all at once. It guarantees you your fair share of all market growth. And so in Australia, you could buy like all Australian stocks. But since you guys aren't a massive uh, economic power in the world, you probably want to invest in international stocks too, like US and Europe and things like that. Um, and so you can buy, you can even buy a world index fund where just one single click, you buy every company in the world. And as those companies grow and profit and generate dividends, those are all funneled back to you in your account. And if you just kind of make slow monthly contributions to a world index fund and wait 10 or 20 or 30 years, you'll be a millionaire. Um, and that's kind of what's going on inside of your super too. That's kind of set up for you. And I think it's good to like know how that works and see what's happening in there. So you know how that wealth is being created for you as well. Well, that's, that's exactly right. We're, we're super lucky here in Australia where that is you're absolutely right. That's happening in the background and it's mandatory for 10% of our earnings to be taken away from us and put into a, you know, a fund where we can't touch that until you know, at present at 60, but you know, by the time, you know, millennials get to retirement, that's probably going to be 70 or 80, which is, it's actually a great thing. And um, for the listeners out there, if you wanted to sort of run these numbers for yourself, head over to personalfinanceclub.com because Jeremy, I love your calendar there, the investment growth retirement calculator. It's, um, it's, that's just, if you know, what I'm saying there, listeners, you don't have to take Jeremy or my word for it, head over to this calculator and it shows you basically what you, if you put in X amount now, you invest X amount for a longer period of time. It's just, the numbers are, it's the numbers don't lie, do they, Jeremy? It's actually super simple. Yeah, I think I, I love the, that you call out the calculator because I think so many people don't don't really can't really see or visualize that power of compound growth and that power of early and often investing. You know, for example, if you just put here, I'm gonna I'm gonna run some numbers. So if you start with zero and you put 500 bucks a month away, and uh, you get seven percent return, which is kind of the average after accounting for inflation of you know economic growth over a long period of time, and you, and you do that for forty years, so it's kind of like a normal career. Just that five hundred bucks a month is over one point three million dollars at retirement, and that's that's after inflation. So that means that's like as if you can spend it today, um, and that's you know that's five hundred bucks a month. So you know it's not nothing. Five hundred bucks is a lot, but you know, when you look at a normal person, what they spend on their rent, what they spend on their car, what they spend on going out to meals, you know, just some really, really modest changes, like buy a little bit cheaper apartment, but get a little cheaper house, get a little cheaper car, you know, like skip one dinner a month or whatever, you know, you can, you can find 500 bucks pretty easily there. And is that stuff really worth over a million dollars? Like being a millionaire, you know, at retirement from like 25 to 65 or whatever it is. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think it's really great to see that and, and just know that, that beginning early and often what it's really going to produce for you over time. I love that. And mate, while you were running the numbers, I was, <laughs> you beat me to it. I was also on your calculator running some numbers as well. And that's where it's really, we're really fortunate where in Australia, it's a bit of a left, right punch because the numbers that you've just gone through, that is, for example, in your, that's your individual money, but I've just run the numbers for, for a 30 year old who's got some, they might have, you know, 15,000 in superannuation already. And on average, they're going to be putting in, you know, a thousand dollars a month Well, their employer will be. So they don't actually have to do anything. And if we use your same return, that's going to be another 1.7 million on top of the, what was your, what was your figure? 1.3, yeah. 1.3. So we're talking about $3 million here. Um, 
with with basically half of the work done for you via your superannuation and the other half is literally like you said it's just one less dinner a cheaper car and, and that's those, that's the type of thing right where oh, and i want to talk to that now because i come across this a lot jeremy where someone goes to me i want to finance this car right or, or, or what have you and they they can afford the 600 dollars car repayment there's no problem there but it's what that costs them in the long run yeah. And I think people, if they had a look at your calculator and, bef- you know, before they made that decision to buy that, you know, go into that debt, right? If they say, okay, yeah. well, obviously I can afford it. The $600 a week is, a month is no problem. But am I willing to drive this car knowing that it's going to cost me a million dollars? And I, I, yeah. I would love to think that people can start to run those numbers in their heads before yeah. they go into these decisions. Yeah, I have one of my big things is that people people who are broke kind of think in terms of monthly payments and people who are wealthy think in terms of total amounts. And so if you're just kind of like going through month to month and throughout your whole life and just saying, okay, I bring in 4,000, I'm going to spend 4,000. What's the car going to cost me per month? What's the mortgage going to cost me per month? What's the rent going to cost me per month? Like you're kind of just forcing yourself into this indentured servitude of working for your job, being in the rat race and making those payments your whole life. But when you, like you said, you take a step back What's this car actually cost? You know, the sticker price might be $30,000 after financing it might be 40,000 or 50,000. And that's just basically going to go to zero once I'm done paying it off because that car is going to be worth very little at that point. And there's an opportunity cost of what could that have been if I was investing it. So it's going to cost me 40,000 and maybe it could have turned into 80,000 if I was investing it. So that's 120,000 Delta just over like the seven year length of a loan, it just gets so devastating the math when you start looking at the total amounts, what's this really going to be in the long run, not what is this just going to cost me per month. In one of your one of your habits, right? And I'd love you to talk us through your habits and the plan and your rules. But what talk me through, you know, the, the earn more money. Are you sort of saying like because that's sometimes you know, I'd have listeners out there who are you know they're struggling, they might have some kids and they might, you know, especially in the current times where you know, everyone's almost, you know, consolidating everything and, you know, they're not so much worried about, you know, earning more money. It's more at the moment, just keeping the money that they've got. But, you know, you know, assuming, you know, things get better soon, what, what sort of some of the habits that, or the, the, the tricks that you've seen for people to increase what they earn to then invest that money? Yeah. So when I say, you know, the, the first rule is live below your means, there's really two sides of that coin. One is to spend less and the other is to earn more. And you want to just create a bigger delta between what you're spending and what you're earning. And so, you know, if you're earning $2,000 a month um, and you live in Sydney or something, it's going to be pretty difficult to live very far below your means. Um, you just, life, it costs money for food, it costs money for rent, you know, it costs money to, for transportation. Um, and so if you can, if you can increase that 2000 to 3000 or 4000 and then spend only a little bit more of that, then you got a better chance. And so, you know, I think there's two things. One is just to think long-term, you know, you can't just snap your fingers and double your salary today, but you know, it's kind of like this cliche interview question, where do you see yourself in five years? But I really want to like, I think it's really good to think about if in a perfect world in five years from now, you were killing it, you were making six figures, you had a great job, you, you know, what would that look like? And then what do you need to do today to get there? because you can't just snap your fingers and make it happen. And so the only choice is, yes, you have two options. You have two options is to start today and slowly work your way there over time or to never do it at all. And I think of those two, you want to be there in five years because whatever age you are, if you add five years to that number and then think, hmm, when I'm in that age, when I'm that age, 
do I want to have everything, you know, everything figured out and like have my life really together and have that great income? Or do I want to be right where I am today? You know, you definitely want to have it, have it figured out. So, um, yeah, I think about like whether it's education or a license or, um, starting a small business or a side hustle, you know, even you, I think before we started recording, you said, you know, this podcast is getting some good traction. Think about where it's going to be in five years. If you keep hustling, you keep making great shows, you keep, you know, improving the quality of the content in five years, you're going to have like a massively popular podcast. Or if you just kind of like take it easy and let it go by the wayside, it would easily filter, you know, fall apart or whatever. And so that's kind of the challenge of being an adult is that no one's really forcing you to do these things. No one's really telling you to do it except for maybe your parents or something or me. I don't know. I'd like to think that if they're, if they're taking the time to listen to the podcast, they're obviously got some interest of, of growing their wealth. And I think the thing for, for me and what motivates myself, and this is sort of probably a combination of my own philosophy and um, data of, or that I've collected of just literally having, you know, thousands and thousands of meetings over the last 12 years, just with people of all walks of life is, and what I've sort of come to the conclusion of is that getting, seeing zeros in your bank account doesn't, you know, excite people to change their habits and to start, you know, implementing these, you know, living by your means and, you know, investing. But I think what you've got to, that I always like to think it, the vision should excite you. So it's not about, okay, if I invest today, I'm going to have a million dollars. Like the numbers just, we just went through of yet, yeah, if you invest your 500 a month, there'll be a million. And then if you do your super, that's another 1.3, whatever. That's great. But I would love to, for the listeners to think, okay, if I do that, that means that I can work if I want. I can decide not to work. I can basically, I can sit on any seat on that plane that I want. If I want to go to Europe in April and then America in June and then to the Switzerland in September, you can do that if you have $3 million. And I think that's, and you know, or it might be more, you might be more, like for me personally, it's like I uh, get a lot of motivation to get up out of bed early and do what I do for my girls, right? So I, um, I just love the idea that if I, if I do X, Y, Z and work hard in my business and, you know, do, do the things I'm meant to do, that means I can go on, on holiday with my wife and my daughters without having to worry about the finances. And that is what, to circle back, motivates me to, to, to sort of live below my means and invest because I know what that outcome is. So I think, um, yeah. do, do you sort of like, when it comes to finances and money and, and the personal finance club, Jeremy, like, the end goal for you, I suppose it's obviously wealth creation, but what does that allow you to do on a, on a personal level with, with your life? Yeah, that's so great. And I love, I love these kinds of conversations where it's about um, the mentality because I think so many people are kind of stuck in this very backwards way of thinking where they think spending makes them happy today, like driving, like leasing that BMW or buying the next meal. And and that doesn't really make someone happy. And so what I call it is knowing the why, like why are you doing this? And, and recognizing that you can never like spend enough to make you happy. You'll only really be content when you decide that you have enough. Um, and also a lot of people think that I don't want to be wealthy in 40 years. I want to be wealthy today. And so I'm just going to like fake it and spend on credit cards and lease cars and borrow a bunch of money. But I think that doesn't create happiness either. I think people who have a plan and know where they're going and they know that they're going to be set later in life and they know that they're not, you know, crippling themselves, they're happier today because they know that they're doing things well and they're happier later. And so if you kind of 
can be content with where you have and where you are and, and realize there's no amount of income that's going to ever become, that's going to cause happiness. So wherever you are, just take a step back, like live a little bit below that income. And then you're going to be happier because you've, you've had you're content with that. And you know that down the road, you're also setting up yourself up. So those, those yellow people who say, Oh, I want to spend today, you know, you're not going to buy happiness today. So you might as well be content and have happiness now and later. <laughs> I love that. That's a, that's a, that's a gold nugget. And I think the, do you agree that I think it's not so much people need, you know, need the money now, but I think the main thing for, for people out there and I know for myself is you just want to know that you, you're going to be okay. And I would hate for my listeners to feel like there's any rush. Like, you know, you're, you're in the States and I sort of follow this closely and I've seen pictures of you online. I've never met you yet, but you look like, look after yourself, right? So um, I'm sort of of the belief that we're going to live for a lot longer than we think. You know, I think there's, there's a lot of listeners out here. The majority of us will live to where at least a hundred, right? So there's plenty of time. So my philosophy is, you know, and I don't sort of, the retirement word, that's not really in my vocabulary. And that's just because of the person I am. And I would like to think that, you know, I'd love somewhere to rock up to, you know, a couple of times a week for the rest of my life and still, you know, make a contribution. But I think that um, the listeners out there, it's these fundamentals that you talk about, it's just basically getting started early and just keep going. Well, the reason for that is we can, on your calculators, right, we can start to think that, okay, well, there's, there's quite, every, the likelihood is quite high that I'm not going to be able to touch these funds for the next 40 years. So what I'm circling back to there is, you may, I think the most important thing is, obviously, in addition to investing, is making sure you enjoy what you do. Because, you know, we're in this game for a long time. So I, I think going to the days where you think, I've just got to go and go hard for 10 years and then I'll be able to retire forever because I, I think there's too much life <laughs> to be able yeah. to justify that, that strategy. What do you yeah. think about that sort of longevity piece and, and, you know, living for today in terms of doing what you want to do, but keeping an eye on the future? Yeah, I totally agree. I, sometimes I hear people say, oh, but I'm 50. Um, you know, I, I can't be investing now. And I'm like, you're 50. Like you probably have 40 years ahead of you. 40 years is like a massively long investment timeline, right? You know, and it, and, you know, I, I think that the, the average age is like mid 70s or late 70s these days. But but also, you know, that includes like a lot of like mortality throughout life. And it's where old people are dying. Right. So I think that number is going to get bigger as time goes on. And if you look at the, you know, the the what's it called? The chart that shows when you're likely to die that insurance companies use like. the uh, Oh, yeah. The actuary the, the life expectancy. Yeah. Topic. The actuary tables. Yeah. If you look at an actuary table. If you're like 60, you know, you have like 25 or 30 years on average, because once you hit that age, you're probably a pretty healthy person. You haven't like, you haven't been one of the people who have met an untimely death. And so you actually still have a lot of years. And so, you know, there's very rarely an age where someone says, I'm this age, should I be, in, should I not be investing or should I not be watching out for, for my future where I'd say, okay, it's too late. You know, if you're like 90 or something and you, you, you got some money, then sure, just send your cash and live life out or whatever. But, you know, if you're, if you're a young or middle-aged person, like there's a lot of life ahead of you and it's still time to, <laughs> to follow these same rules, you know? Absolutely. And I wanted to change tack a little bit because I wanted to get your, I wanted to sort of, for my listeners out there, get a bit of a lay of the land from where you are. Cause there's two things I want to talk about. I wanted to get, you know, and I wanted to talk, get a little bit political after, but the first question I had was, you know, from the, looking at the States, right, it looks people in the U S are a lot more portable. And what I mean by that is, I know there's people out there listening who are living in Sydney and they're just trying to keep up, right? Um, but there is, people don't realise like that 
you can move. And, you know, if you can't afford a million dollar house in Sydney, there's, there's amazing places in Australia where you can get that house for $400,000 and everything changes for you. So when I, every time I go to the US for work and conferences, I go, for, you know, I've had a few beers at the bar. I, I meet, I meet someone and he goes, Oh yeah, I, um, I grew up in, you know, Oregon. And then I went to school in Washington and now I live in San Diego. And um, is that, what's the philosophy like, Jeremy? Like the, cause the people like, is that just part of your DNA in the States where you're quite happy to get up and move if there's a better job or a better opportunity? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how different it is. I, I was in Australia for five weeks a couple of years ago, and everyone I met, I, I guess I met a lot of people who also were moving around like that. You know, I grew up in Adelaide and then went to Cairns and then we're in Melbourne or whatever. Um, and so I guess it's, that's true here too. I, I grew up in Michigan, I'm in San Diego. Um, you know, and, and definitely I was some people, you know, I have friends here in San Diego who did that exact same thing where they said they don't, they want a home for their family with a yard and there are a million dollars here if you want to be within like a mile or five miles of the beach. And so they moved to Arizona, which is the, you know, the next state inward. Um, and then you can get a house for a third of the price. Um, so I, I think it's certainly, yeah, it never struck me as strange. Maybe that's different than, than your experience in Australia. But yeah, I think a lot of people move pretty easily and, and go to where jobs are or go to where, you know, they can make their cost of living work, stuff like that. Well, I think it's, um, I think it's one of those joy things where if you want to live like in a major city, you've got to, you've got to understand that if you don't invest, then that's not going to turn out amazing for you. So, I mean, obviously there's, there's other issues in terms of being close to family and opportunities, but I think for people out there, you've got to be able to not only afford to live where you are, but you've got to have that, that, that sort of, surplus like you said to create a delta to be able to invest because otherwise yeah it could be great to live in sydney for you know 30 years or melbourne or new york or san diego but the reality is if you aren't doing something on the side then although it's been nice to live in that major city it's not you're never going to create that dent and make that sort of wealth work for you in the long run are you yeah i agree you know i mean i think if you want to live in the big city you want to you know, you got to be thinking long-term and think what's it going to take to buy a house here. And if you're just working a low-wage job and spending all your money, like it's not going to magically happen. You got to have a plan to how you're going to get there. Perfect. Now, get a little bit, now can I ask you, so you, we touched on before these exchange traded funds and that's, um, I, I, that's basically makes up all of my investments and that's, um, you know, I'm not a financial advisor, but I was for many years and that's sort of where I've seen the most growth come for, for my previous clients. So without giving financial advice, right, if you're a, you know, let's say you've got a hundred grand, you're looking to get started, how would you sort of break up a portfolio for someone in that situation? Yeah. So in the U.S., we have kind of like a U.S. centric view where we look at things in terms of a U.S. ETF, which is all U.S. stocks an international ETF, which is everything except U.S. stocks and then bonds. And and honestly, like even from an Australian perspective, U.S. international, I think, is becoming less of a big difference now because we just have a global economy and you can kind of see in our current market crash. It's not like some countries are doing great and some countries are doing bad, like, you know, bad economy for the world is a bad economy for the world. And so I like a very simple strategy, which is really thinking about in terms of two things, which is stocks and bonds. And bonds are more likely to be less volatile. They, they don't go have like their big up and down swings, um, but they also go up more slowly over long periods of time where stocks are more volatile, like we're seeing right now. Um, but also over long periods of time to go up faster. 
And so the, the only real decision you have to make, in my opinion, is what's your asset allocation? What, what's your percent stocks and what's your percent bonds? And generally, young people want to be more aggressive, which means more stocks. So if you're in your 20s or 30s, maybe that means 90% stocks, 10% bonds. Some people even say 100% stocks. Maybe it's 80-20. And getting that exactly right isn't that big of a deal. It's just more about picking, picking something and sticking with it. Um, and then as you age, you want to kind of transition. So when you're maybe 70, you're more like 50-50 or 40-60 towards bonds. And so if the next very bad thing happens, then you don't see your portfolio take quite such a big hit. Yeah, I love it. And do you think it's too simple? Like I've heard this strategy before when we're talking about, you know, defensive versus growth assets. So I, I, I've sort of, you know, loosely stuck at this with myself and, you know, in this sort of advice that I used to give where if you're 30, right, it's almost like you should be 70% in growth, right? And let's say as you get older, you can dial down what you've got in growth stocks. So let's say you're 30, you've got, okay, well, 70% is in stocks and 30% is in bonds, so you almost flip it to your age. So let's say you got to, if you were 60, right, you might have 40% in growth, but 60% in defensive and sort of reduce that risk as you go down. But as you probably alluded to there, Jeremy, like those, you know, those percentages, you know, no one, there's no, there's no right answer, right? There's no sort of perfect uh, breakup. But if you just get in and stay in, that's the whole key, right? It's getting in the game, investing regularly and staying in the game. Basically, totally, totally. You know, I, I've never had a conversation with a six-year-old that says, I invested $1,000 a month for my whole career, but I was 30% bonds and 60% stocks. And I should have been 35, <laughs> you know, like, and yeah. so I'm broke. Like, yeah. it's like, that never happened. Like, if you're doing $1,000 a month, but on the, on, the, on the flip side, I've never talked to someone who's like, oh, I put $1 a month away, uh, but I got, that, I got that percent dead on. There's a perfect percentage the whole time. And now I'm a billionaire. Like, that doesn't happen either, right? And so I think people sometimes can get so focused on, you know, get lost in the weeds, focused on the, all the minutia, like, you know, which exact ETF, like how much Australia versus how much international, like how much stocks versus how much bonds. And, and they kind of have like analysis paralysis and don't do anything. And that's the worst thing you can do, right? Go, you know, I would, it's so much more important to invest in something crappy than it is to invest in nothing at all or to spend all your money. Um, and exactly. so, yeah, go, go love- pick a percent and plow money in and wait a few decades and you'll be in good shape. <laughs> it's pretty simple, right? Hey, just before I let you go, could you just tell listeners out there, everyone's, so they're going to be, there's going to be some people out there going, you, you guys are crazy. You're talking about stocks. The market's just come off, you know, it depends where you are, 20, 30%. And you idiots are talking about telling people to invest money in stocks. So what do you say to those people out there who think we're crazy talking about this type of stuff in this current climate? Yeah, well, I... I kind of challenge you to go back through the last, you know, I, I, I post to Instagram daily and I've been saying the same thing before this happened. And I'm saying the same thing now, which is just think long-term, you know, this, this will pass. This is a scary time. I don't mean to like downplay it. Like it's, I think we're not in, you know, we have the worst is yet to come and there's a big health situation that we're going to have the hospitals are going to have a big problem. But, you know, if you just read a history book, like we've had a lot of very bad, very unprecedented things. There is, um, you know, there's a day in 1987 where the stock market dropped 22% in a single day that that had never happened before. Um, then there is the dot com crash. And, you know, for the US 9-11, where, you know, our financial sector, our two biggest, you know, in right on Wall Street, our two biggest, you know, financial buildings got taken down by terrorists and every plane was grounded. And they thought that was the end of the airline industry. And they thought that was the end of the economy. And 
Um, and then we bounced back and hit all time record highs. And then, um, then there's a 2008 financial crisis where banks were actually failing. You know, there's huge banks and that, you know, and insurance companies that were failing and weren't able to like meet their obligations. And everyone thought that was the end of times. So that was going to be, um, you know, the end of everything. And, and after all of these, the market recovers, you know, people are smart and there's innovation and there's hard workers and there's great companies out there and people are really adaptable and they recover every single time it recovers and far out seeds, far out exceeds previous record highs and the, and the, the economy keeps paying off. And so the worst thing you can do when the market drops by 30 cent percent is to sell and lock in your losses because then you have kind of guaranteed that you've lost that money. But if you don't sell and you keep investing, kind of take advantage of the stocks being on sale and think long-term, think where is, you know, we're not going to have a coronavirus problem in 10 years, right? We might in a year, I don't know, like it's bad. It might be in a year, but if you're 30, you're not investing for a year. You're investing for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years down the road, right? And so don't, don't be 50 years from now and then, oh, I wish I could go back to the year 2020, ancient history, and put every penny to my name in that, in that down market because the, I remember what happened. Just like <laughs> I wish I could go back to 2008. Like if I could take my money now and go yeah. back to 2008 and just plow it all in the market, all do investment in real estate, you know, that'd be great. Of course, um, and, of course. <laughs> but people get scared and they kind of do the opposite. When, you know, when, the, when the market's doing great, everyone's just plowing money in and, and then they get scared and they take money out and it's like kind of the opposite of what they should do. They should really be looking for those opportunities and just investing early and often. So that's the key. That's and I, I love it. And I think the key is don't invest money that you're going to need next week or next month or, or next year. That's not a good idea. If you're getting married next year and you, you know, you, you've got 25,000 saved up and you want to just put it somewhere. This is uh, for listeners out there. This is not the, this is not the, that's not the uh, type of money that Jeremy and I are talking about. We're talking about long-term money. You know, one of yeah. the strategies that I used to say to clients is the first question, how long do you need this money for? And if it was under 10 years, I would say, sorry, we're not going to put it there, right? And this is the same yeah. for me. I practice what I preach. And I always say to people, you know, put your money in, invest it, you know, in good quality, you know, ETFs where it's getting managed by someone else. You don't have to manage it. You know, you know don't, don't think that you're going to be better than a professional. At least to give the money away to someone who does it for a living. And then get someone to change your password on you. Don't, don't let them tell you what it is. And then yeah. <laughs> ask them for that password in 10 years. Because there is literally no point of you logging in there every day, checking what, you mark, what, your, what your portfolio is doing, right? Because it's, yeah. what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to think you're going to sell it and buy back in tomorrow once the coronavirus gets worse. It just doesn't sort of work like that, does it? Yeah. Yeah, there's this famous study that was supposedly was done by Fidelity. I've had a hard time pinning down an actual like source in this, but they said, the way the, way the, the tale goes is they, um, they looked at all their investors and tried to identify like the demographic of their best investors. Is it, you know, are, are older people better? Are people who have certain types of degrees and more educated, certain areas, locations, age, race, religion, whatever? And they found out that their best investors by far was a tie between two different groups of people. One, people who forgot their login information and two, <laughs> dead people. <laughs> Those two people who never logged in their accounts outperformed the average of all other demographics because they don't make those panicky, emotional human mistakes that are so common. You know, you, things go down, you want to get out, things go up, you want to get back in and you're always chasing that performance and you're hurting yourself long-term, you can't predict it. Like, I don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks. Like, we all know that the virus is probably going to get worse, 
but that price is already reflected in the market because that's the market represent represents the prediction of that right so we don't know if the prediction or the expectation is going to get better or worse and so all you can do is just stay the course invest early and often and i love that H have someone delete your login information for you and, and send it back to you in 10 years that's how you're going <laughs> to become the best investor <laughs> i love it and I'm, I'm so grateful the best part about hosting this podcast for me is i get to learn a lot too you know i've sort of been really fortunate of being in finance for for a long time but they, I, I really appreciate you spending your time with me today, Jeremy, because it's really cool to get insight from yourself and you know, someone who's who's accomplished what you've accomplished under forty, like it's it's super inspiring. And you know, I, I can't wait to see how, you know, and without sort of you you alluded to the question before, but if I was to ask you, you know, fast forward ten years and not, you know, what would have had to have happened for you, right, to feel like it was a success? Is it just more growth or is it career orientated? What, what's your next move? Buddy. Yeah, I love conversations like this because this is what I love doing. You know, for kind of a, I, I quit my job about three years ago, and for a while I was kind of playing with starting another company, and um, and I just I don't get excited about anything else like I get excited about this when I can talk to young people and turn them into future millionaires. It just it just feels like a really good use of my time and something that still excites me every day. And so yeah, I want to just like you with your podcast. I want to grow. I want to. Um, keeping the word out and, and solve that problem we discussed at the beginning of the, of the, of the show where um, this isn't part of education. You know, I want it to become part of education and I want people to have a altruistic, unbiased source of good information where they can learn about money and change their behaviors and change their, you know, plan for the future. Um, and so I don't know exactly what it looks like. You know, I want to expand my Instagram and my YouTube and maybe have a podcast of my own one day and we'll see. But um, but until then, I'm just going to keep growing and keep trying to spread the good word. Well, mate, I'll help you out there. So, guys, if, you, if you're wondering how you get in touch with Jeremy, you've got to make sure you head over to his Instagram page. It's just packed full of – it's almost like a bit of a finance university. You could get lost on the page for, for hours, but he's got, he does these really cool little infographics where it's sort of – Jeremy, one of the things I love about what you do is you, you make it sound really simple. You know, it's, you don't, you know, you, you really simplify it. So guys, if you do yourself a favor, head over to the um, Personal Finance Club Instagram page and also jump onto the website, personalfinanceclub.com. Check out the calculators. If, you, if you're a bit nervous about, you know, get, getting started in investing, I'd urge you to jump on to the calculator on Jeremy's website because it, it takes all of the guesswork out for you you can just jump on there and go yeah okay well here's what i got to start with here's what i can comfortably put in every month here's how long i'm going to invest for and then really plain and simply jeremy's calculator just shows you how much how it's going to work out you know and that's that's factoring in good and bad times so jeremy mate i just wanted to say thanks again mate. this has been brilliant i know i've learned a lot and i know the listeners would have taken a lot out of this so thank you so much for taking the time mate and i really appreciate you having you on yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for the shout out. Uh, it, it was great. I love the show. And yeah, let me know if I can ever be of any help to you. Mate, I absolutely will. I'll be annoying you down the track to, to come on again. It's been it's been great. There's been so much there that, that we've taken out. So, so you take care and I, I, I hope everyone stays safe over there in the US and we, and we get through this tough time, um, hopefully sooner rather than later. You as well. Yeah, stay safe. There you go. That's a wrap on another Next Level Finance podcast. Thanks for joining me today. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button and that way a new episode will be sent to you every time it's released a couple of times a week. Also, if you think there's someone in your life who's maybe doing it tough or thinking about getting started in investment, please do us a favor, copy the link and share it with them. We'd love to expand the listeners on this network. So stay safe, take care and look forward to catching up again on the next podcast.